0: Welcome to the Arise Church Podcast, where we exist so that way you can experience God. If you like this content, would you consider subscribing and joining our online community? That way you can get notified on each week's messages. With that being said, we pray that this message encourages you and inspires you to take one step closer to Jesus. Hey, super excited to be with you this morning. Though Uh, we always want to celebrate as we get started. Um, I've never been a part of what God is doing in our church uh, like it has been recently. And in in a course of about roughly two days ish uh, last weekend, um, without a without a healing altar call, without a healing evangelist, without even a a sermon on healing, we saw at least thirty people experience physical healings last week. Isn't that crazy? And it was extra beautiful because so much of it was not even like, like, it's like during worship somebody's healed or during the message or one person was healed in the sound booth during a practice. Uh, people are healed out in Main Street and in the hallways. It's not like just at the altars and it's not by pastors praying for them. Sometimes they're healed with nobody praying for them. Sometimes they're healed with one of you praying for them. And I just love that because that's a real move of God. Revival is... Yeah, Revival Is Now. Uh, today is the last installment of this Revival Is Now series, although we will kind of mention it throughout the year as our custom uh, uh, with our themes. Uh, but next week, we will start a short three-week series for the rest of February called Win at Home. Just saw a promo for that a second ago. And uh, we want you to win at home. And so God is still going to be moving. Miracles are still going to be happening, even though we go into a little bit more practical of a message in some regards. So, hey, um, let me ask you this question. um. Do you like leftovers? Okay. It depends what it's leftover, though, because some people are like, yeah, like McDonald's fries. After like 15 minutes, no, nah. come on. So it really depends what it is leftover, right? Because like when I say leftovers, you assume good stuff. Because some things do get better with age. It's not just my wife. Come on, somebody. <laughs> Some things do get better with age. You know, chili gets a little bit better. Uh, uh, um, uh, lasagna and, and frequently Italian food in general gets a little better when it's... And my favorite, though, my favorite is banana pudding. My gosh. Some, somebody, somebody reached out um, or, or, uh, this, in the last week. Like, I don't eat banana pudding very often. It's not made very often around me. Uh, but, but two different people brought banana pudding for events that were going on here this, this week in our church. And I just want to say Praise God. I'm just putting it out right now. Every time we have those like events where it's like, hey, bring a dish or whatever, somebody needs to bring banana pudding. God is in the banana pudding. My sister, she watches us online. Hey, Brenda. My sister uh, watches us online. She makes what I think is the best banana pudding. She makes amazing banana pudding. And uh, I always tease her because I'm like, you need to make it like two or three days in advance before you actually want to serve it. So if it's Thanksgiving, make it like, you know, Tuesday and let it sit in the refrigerator until Thanksgiving on Thursday. Because banana pudding is one of those things. Like if it sits in the refrigerator for like two days or so, like I don't know what the expiration, I'm sure there's some point it's too long, but when it sits there for a couple days and it gets all gooey and all that, like come on, y'all, come on. I'm like, I'm down with some banana pudding. Um, I'm going somewhere. Some of you are like, why are we talking about banana pudding? That sounds like a Southern Baptist thing, like, you know, fried chicken and banana pudding. Anyway. Because sometimes the leftovers are the best part. Uh, sometimes the leftovers get turned into things, like things from the past get brought into the future to get turned into things. Like we, we make quilts and things like that out of leftovers. Some of you had family members who would make quilts. Uh, Melody Snyder, uh, one of our admins, and, and many of you know Melody. Go to the marriage conference. You'll meet Melody and Brian. Uh, she made a, um, or had this made, a, a quilt, a blanket, out of all of our old Arise t-shirts that she had. Like if you've been a part of a rise very long, you know, like we will, we will fill your wardrobe. Like, like we are a t-shirt church, man. We got, and now we got shoes and hats and stuff too. So I'm waiting for like the belts and suspenders. I don't know. but, but I thought this was a cool idea, right? All these old shirts. She actually has two of these. She has one that's this one for kind of our main church shirts. And then she has a whole other one that are next-gen shirts from kids ministry and youth ministry from different things that has gone on. I just thought that was really cool. Because um, when, you, when you see this, you, the, the things of the past, the, the remnants, so to speak, of the past become pictures of the future. It's, it's A remnant it's kind of that, that little thing that's left over, that if it's properly stewarded, can become that thing all over again. Um, and we see that sometimes the remnants can be incredibly impactful because remnants can be a symbol of what once was in a picture of what can be. I love the movie The Patriots, one of, my, one of my top movies of all time. Love that movie. And there's a scene that's kind of a subplot within that movie of Gabriel Martin, who's pictured here. It's uh, uh, Heath Ledger, um, the son. And after a battle, he picks up that American flag. And the American flag is tattered, and it's worn, and it's got holes all in it from bullet holes, and it's got rips all in it and tears and, and such. And he picks it up, and throughout the movie, you see him with needle and thread sewing it back together the remnant of what once was, putting it back together, fixing the holes, fixing the tears, until that amazing scene at the end of the movie where the father, after Gabriel's been killed, the father, Father Benjamin Martin, then starts going into battle, carrying that flag that his son had put back together. Remnants are like that. They, They become these symbols of both what once was and what can be in the future. I mean, history is like that in general. History is typically repeats itself in so many ways. And if you want to see the future, just look at history in so many ways. And, and when we talk about remnants, and I've been throughout this series... Mentioning remnants over and over and over and over, because remnants are key to the revival and the awakening that God is going to do. And and I want to unpack that and go in a lot of depth this morning about the remnant. Give you some uh, 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 an actual example of a remnant. But I just want to ask this question as we get started: Is is there still a remnant of God's true people left today? I'm glad five of you are in agreement. Uh, You say. It's still a remnant of people who are unashamed of the gospel. People who may be small in number, but they are large in faith. (laughs) People who may not have a lot of notoriety, but they have a lot of understanding of the power of God. People who still believe in the power of the cross and the power of the blood of Jesus to wash away our sins. People who still speak of repentance and the Spirit's empowerment that may not be popular today, but this, this remnant. I think some of us sometimes become like Elijah. Elijah, you see this situation play out where the government was now against him and they had walked away from their faith in Yahweh, Jehovah God. They had walked away from them and, and now the government is chasing him down. Queen Jezebel, who's maybe the most powerful person in, in that context because she was more powerful than her husband because her husband just did whatever she did. So she starts chasing him, and he feels like the whole world is against me. Everything is against me. And, 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 and in my opinion, I think he had been watching too much CNN and Fox News and like, everything is going wrong. The world is ending. America's going to pot, Israel's done with. And, and all this has been going on and, and, and all this. And, and now China's sending blimps or, or, or you know, balloons over us, whatever. And like everything's just falling apart, and, and he has this whole little hissy fit. In the book of 1 of, of, uh, Kings, you see it, 1 uh, Kings 19, and he has this little hissy fit. He's like, God, I'm the only one left. It's just me. Just me. And he finds himself in this depression, because that's what happens when you watch too much news. It's not a sermon if I don't preach against the news at least once every Sunday. <laughs> and yet, y'all still watch it all the time. Anyway. Put your... He's all, all upset about how the government is mistreating him. And, 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 and he's like, I am the only one left. I'm the last one. It is only me who still believes in, in you. And God has this moment with him. He's like, bro, come on, take a chill pill. Like, like, I need to give those away again. Years ago, we gave away chill pills in the church. I need to do that. I need to do that again. But God's like, take a chill pill and uh, take a step back. You're not the last one. You're, there, there's, a, there's a whole remnant of people. Which is what Romans chapter 11, Paul is writing about and he uses that same illustration in the story of Elijah. We're going to read that one. And Paul writes to the Romans who are in Rome, obviously, and he writes to them because there's, the, there's like a little tiff between the people because you have the, 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 the Jewish Christians who got saved and they're bringing their Judaism with them into Christianity, kind of like Messianic Jewish today, which is, has some beautiful uh, parts of it. And then you have, the, the, then you have the, the, the Gentiles who are getting saved and they don't understand the Jewish customs at all. It makes no sense to them. And so Paul's trying to pull these two groups together. And he does it in some of the most beautiful theology in the New Testament. In fact, Romans chapter 8, go read it at another time, is sometimes referred to as the great eight because Romans chapter 8 might be the most important chapter apart from the Gospels in the New Testament. Beautiful theology throughout the book of Romans. But he's, he's writing to them, trying to figure out, trying to teach them these things. And, and he's talking about how God's people through years have rejected God they might have kept the name Jew, but they had walked away from actually the practices of God, which doesn't sound unlike to me many people who would claim Christianity but don't actually practice anything within Christianity. And he's using that as an example, and he's talking about his own Judaism. In Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 5, he said, I asked then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what Scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed a knee to Baal. In the key verse, number five. So too, at this present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. Yeah. I, I know this passage is written nearly 2,000 years ago to a specific group of people in Rome, but I do believe that the Holy Spirit is enlightening for us, enlight, enlightening it for us even today to say the same thing to us for all who are frustrated at the times and wondering how God can still show up in the midst of what we see outside. And He's saying, so too. At this present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. I know that across America, and I'm not going to beat up on people too much, but you do have to paint this picture. I know that across America there are plenty of people who have accepted a watered-down version of Christianity. They, They have a form of Christianity that lowers God's expectations to their own truth, their own ways, their own desires. It can be said that they're not actually interested in truth. They're interested in being reassured that their truth is truth. They end up creating God in their own image rather than creating them in, or, or changing themselves to fit God's image. They've been told that Christianity is just praying a prayer and getting to heaven when you die. There's no spiritual formation. There's no life change. There's, 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 there's none of that. There's no kingdom of God in their lives. And so oftentimes people abandon the call to take up their cross and actually follow Jesus. We take on a name of Christianity, but we don't have the practices of Christianity. And when we do that, we end up being superficial, superficial and shallow. We end up becoming consumeristic. And we eventually create a heretical version of Christianity that doesn't resemble the New Testament whatsoever. <laughs> which is our standard, not the person next to us as I talked about last week. (coughs) Forgive me, I've been under the weather, especially today. And it can leave us in this position of looking around going, am I the only one left? You go to work and everybody's talking about things and doing things and, and living a life that's so different than the life that you know is the biblical life of the Christian. And so oftentimes they even refer to themselves as Christian because they go to, they go to church on Easter and, and maybe Christmas. And it can feel like, am I the only one left because the odds are against us? If, if we were playing cards, I'd want to fold about now because it's just not going to win at this point. But I want to tell you that there is a remnant. Even in this present time, there is a remnant. You are not alone. Not all people have rejected the actual true biblical message. There is a remnant of people who still believe in the power of the cross, who still believe in the word of God in the Bible, who still believe in the blood of Jesus Christ and the salvation of sins, who still believe in prayer, who still believe in the Holy Spirit, and who still believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the third day and has the power to change us from the inside out. There is still a remnant of people who are faithful to the call of God amidst opposition. Remnants who are strong even when all hell breaks loose against them. They remain faithful to the Lord. They have crazy faith, stubborn faith, unwavering, unrelenting, ridiculous faith that when all hell is coming against them, when life's storms start rushing against them, they remain standing. They may have scars, but they are still standing. Those who cling to the vine because they're the branches clinging to the vine no matter what comes their way. These are the people who look like a weathered sea captain that their face is tired sometimes and they might look a little haggard, but they say, I am pressing on whatever comes my way and we are moving forward. That's a big contrast to some of what we see in our society today. We, we, we sang a song a minute ago that, that Pastor Jason and I have had many, many conversations about. And, and I understand in the grand picture of the song what it means. But, but I want to be real with you because we are a real church, by the way. Sometimes too real. <laughs> My wife sometimes tells me after sermons, she's like, that was too real. <laughs> and we sang a song a minute ago that said, God has never let me down. Come on, really? I know in the grand scheme of things, God's perfect plan will always be true. But if you're like me, if you are honest, you've had moments that it first certainly feels like God let me down. God, I prayed for this person to be healed and they died. It feels like God let me down. And I understand the big picture of that song. But, but, but sometimes you've got to recognize that God will, quote, let you down because he's not living up to your standard of what it's, the thing's supposed to be. And so we end up making a god based in our image. There's a song that I'm I'm sorry I'm preaching today, and I'm meddling more than I probably usually would, but I think it's important. There's a song. There's a song (laughs) that's pretty popular right now, and I like most of the song. But there's a line that keeps repeated in it, and it starts with it that that you're never going to let me down. You're never going to let me down. You're never going to let me down. What if he does? I hope he never does. But I just want to be real with you. What if he does? Because I am sick and tired of mamby-pamby quick Christians that every time they feel like God let them down, they walk away from God. When oftentimes God didn't let them down, the church let them down, some believer let them down, some system let them down, but it wasn't actually God who let them down because their faith wasn't in God, it was in a man. What if God does let you down? You see, there's a remnant that's so caught up in in, in hanging to the vine. We're so caught up in hanging that that, that we just can't stop just because it seems like it didn't end the way I thought it was supposed to end. There is a remnant out there that even when God seems to let you down, they ain't going anywhere. Come on, y'all. If you don't believe me, the book of Revelation, as it talks about the end of the world and the Antichrist fighting against others, one of the things the Antichrist fights against is the remnant. (laughs) it says that they make war against the remnant and for the record it'll look like it'll look like god let them down if you're taking notes let me give you a few this morning number 1 remnants are often forged during difficult times remnants are often forged during difficult times there are A number of examples of remnants throughout the Bible. I want to focus on one because I think it's very relevant to us, and it might be the greatest example of a remnant from their perspective that's in the Bible. In 597 B.C., uh, the Babylonian kingdom destroyed Jerusalem, which was the final fall of Israel. A northern kingdom had already fallen. The southern kingdom, which was a little more godly, known as Judah, was yet to fall. And as it falls, it is the worst time in Israelite history. Uh, it is the ugliest time. As you know, when sieges would happen at that time period, they would get around a city or a location and stop anything from coming or going. Therefore, you end up starving to death. And some people were actually resorting to cannibalism. And it was a horrible, horrible time in Israel's history. The worst time in all of Israel's history, and they had some bad times, was during this particular siege in this particular time. And so Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, goes in and he 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 wins the battle and takes people back into what would be called exile he brings them back into Babylon. Now, of those that he would bring back into Babylon, his custom, which is a great strategy, was to bring people from the countries that he conquered, because they understand the language and the culture from the country that was conquered. He would bring the best and the brightest into his culture, and then he would indoctrinate them and brainwash them into his culture, so then they would have an understanding of both cultures, so then he would teach them what to do and how to lead those people that were from that place, because they understand both worlds. Uh, it's actually a pretty ingenious plan. And of those that he brought back from exile, there's five of them that you know by name if you grew up in church. Uh, one of them is Daniel. Then you got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the other one you might, always, you might not always put into the setting, but that's Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel. All of those were five of the ones that are brought back from, um, from Jerusalem and go into what's called Babylonian exile. Now, from the start, there is all kinds of issues that would make it hard for these young exiles to actually hold to their faith in Yahweh. For one, the, the cultural systems of the day, the understanding kind of broadly, was that whatever God was the God of the people who conquered you, if that God allowed your God to be conquered, then that God must be the true God. It sort of makes sense, right? If, if, if my God and my people conquer your God and your people, then that shows that my God is more powerful than your God. That had been the custom from the beginning of the world. You've seen that over and over and over. You need to read the Old Testament in the context of that. When there's all these battles with Philistines and, 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 and Israelites and things like David and Goliath, there's, there's a picture here that our God is stronger than your God. That's why David would say, I'm not fighting with just flesh and bone alone, but with, a, with, a, with, with God on my side. And so you, you picture this, this scene happening over and over. So they, they even start from the beginning behind the curve because the cultural standard said, well, their God must be God. <coughs> on top of that, they, well, well, let me make sure I do this in order. If you're taking notes, you should have this in your notes. The faith of Daniel was forged, tried, and tested amidst the extreme conditions of Babylon. So all this, this, this practice starts going on. And they get brought into Babylon. Babylon was the most modern city of that time period. It was incredible. You still, to this day, talk about one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. The buildings in Babylon were unlike anything that these young boys had ever seen in Israel. Everything about Babylon seemed better than Israel. (laughs) In fact, it makes more sense that we should be worshiping whatever God allowed them to create this particular place. And so you see this indoctrination start happening. So first they had to learn a new language. And study their literature or their God. It's the, it's the Chaldean language. Uh, Daniel 1.4 says he was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. If you want to indoctrinate somebody, get them young and start making them read your language, your understanding of the world. They quickly get your philosophies and your culture. If you, if you really want to make somebody look like an outsider, um, let them not speak the language of the place they're in. Right? I've shared this before, but it's, it always cracks me up. Years ago, I was in Mexico doing a mission trip, and, and uh, I speak uh, you know, a little tiny bit of Spanish, but this older gentleman that I was with didn't speak any Spanish, and um, um, we had been giving away food at this uh, food pantry to people, and we had, I don't know, maybe... 20 bags left or something. And so they said, go out on the street. Just anybody you see, just give it away. We can't keep it, just give it away. So we go out on the street and this older gentleman who was trying to speak Spanish walks up to this lady pushing a, pushing a, a, a cart with her a, a stroller with her child in it, pushing it. And he walks up to her and he holds up the bag and he says, he meant to say, hola. And he said, ole. <laughs> and I loved it. I watched the whole thing. I laughed so hard because she had no idea what he was saying. But human nature is that you just repeat what's said to you in those moments. And so she said, ole! It was beautiful. Nothing makes you stand out faster than not being able to speak the language. And so these boys have to first start learning the Chaldean language and culture and understanding the way they do things and be re-educated within that system. Secondly, they were uh, portions of food. These were the greatest royal delicacies of Babylon. The problem is that all of them had been offered to idols in the past. And so to eat this food meant that I'm eating foods that were offered to false gods. That was a big time no-no within the Jewish tradition. You did not do that. And so how are they going to respond to that? Now you have to put yourself into the context once again of these young men because they have been in a land of famine now for years, seeing the ugliest of humanity as they resort to cannibalism and the grossest things you can think of, And now they get ushered into this amazing place with all of these surroundings, and they're offered the greatest foods you could think of. Banana pudding was no doubt on the menu. I can't prove that, but I'm certain it's true. Daniel 1.5, the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. This meant that this this meat that was sacrificed before idols, because you know the idol doesn't actually consume it. Come on, y'all. So that meat would then, after its sacrifice, would be taken into the king's palace, the king's and the king's and his people would eat the meat that is given there. Um, and they're like, what, what, what am I going to do about that? And then, and then thirdly, they're, they're given new identities. They're given new identities. Daniel 1, 6-7 says, Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief priests gave them new names. Daniel, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, to Azariah, Abednego. And these four young men lose their beautiful Hebraic names and have to take on the names that are now given to them, which are radically different. So Daniel meant God is judge, but Belshazzar meant Bel will protect. Ooh, just change your whole identity. It used to be around Yahweh, but now it's going to all change. Hananiah meant God is gracious, but Shadrach meant inspired by Aku. That's the the moon deity. Azariah meant God is my help, That's changed over to Abednego, meaning servant of Nebo. That's the god of Venus. Mishal meant who is like God, and it's changed to Meshach, which meant who is like Aku. This is all done to brainwash them. And so you have this cultural environment that from top to bottom is trying to change who they are to fit into an entire new culture. From the literature to the names to identities, all of this being changed over. Don't know how much we've talked about this. I've shared it before, but you may not have heard it. But sometimes anthropologists will call the age that we're living in a digital Babylon. We are now living in a digital Babylon. Because just like it was with the time of the Babylonian exile with with these Hebrew boys, particularly Daniel... You see the same things happening today where there's this gravitational force that's almost like the air we breathe that is everywhere around us, that's shaping us and forming us into the image of this world and to fit in with where the progressive mind wants to go into the future of the world, this secular utopia that is going and is trying to form us into an image to get to that place. It's everywhere around us. So we become indoctrinated and we get new names and new philosophies and new understandings of everything that are very different than what it used to be. So sexual deviations are usually just alternative lifestyles now. And the idea that you would actually be abstinent until marriage is so old-fashioned now that it's absolutely ridiculous. You get new identities that now there's not just male and female, but you can just... Start putting asterisks next to that. New theories and secular humanism and macroevolution. New remedies for everything. Instead of turning to the Lord, you can turn to a pill for everything. And over and over and over, the, the situation is very similar, although it's different. It's very similar to what they experienced in Babylon. But, but Daniel rises up. And, I, and you learn a little bit more about Daniel than the others. But he rises up and basically says, I, I'm just going to refuse to get brainwashed. Even though your country beat my country. Even though God, your, your, your God seems to be greater than my God, if you're just looking at a natural perspective, because my God just failed me. Even, even though you have all the food and all the wine and the, and the good stuff, it says this in Daniel 1.8, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. Make no mistake, if you're going to survive and live a remnant lifestyle within the culture, in the gravitational force of this culture, you're going to have to make a conscious decision to resolve not to be what this culture is trying to teach you to be. There's an old school word for it. We don't like to use this word very much anymore. It's called convictions. Oh, for the day that we would still have convictions. And so he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself. He said, do I really have to, have to eat this food? Is there a way around it? He said, what if we do a trial for 10 days For 10 days, I'm going to eat. Now, now, now you know that Daniel really was committed to God because he basically says, I'm going to be a vegetarian. (laughs) If you're a vegetarian in the room, I love you because that means there's more meat for me. (laughs) But God would have to come down in a Chinese balloon or something (laughs) and say... You must become, because I'm like, no, nah, God, like, God, no, nah, no, nah. like, come on, really? No, nah, no. Nah. And Daniel's like, I'll, I'll, I'll just eat fruits and vegetables for 10 days, and then you're going to see in the story that it continues afterwards. And so they, they test him, and they say, all right, you can try it for 10 days and just see how that works. And I don't have time to read it all for you, but at the end of the 10 days in Daniel 1, 15 through 20, you can read it yourself, you find that he comes back, and he is more adjusted, he is smarter, he is brighter, not just him, but also Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who are part of that part of the story, that all of them are the best and the brightest and that when they stand before the king and are challenged and and to see how much they've learned, they're actually smarter than everybody else and they're more prosperous than everybody else. I don't know who I'm talking to, but but it may not seem like it at the start, but there is a blessing for the remnant. When you do things God's way, there is a blessing that comes with it. Number two, if you're taking notes, remnants form new discipleship patterns. These are really old patterns. They're not really new patterns, but they're revived patterns, especially in our culture today. And these patterns are what allow you to fight against the gravitational force of the culture that we're all a part of. You know, we are told not to conform to the pattern of this world. Right? That's what Paul also wrote in Romans chapter 11, a chapter after the last verse we read. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And here's the simple fact. You will conform to a pattern. The question is, is it going to be a pattern of your choosing or is it going to be a pattern that you're just kind of falling into? You will conform to some kind of pattern. Some people would call it systems. Systems is not a wrong word for this as well, but it's a system. It's a pattern of your lifestyle in all kinds of ways that make you who you are. You got up this morning and you probably followed the same pattern that you followed for years. You, you set your alarm for the same time. You followed the same pattern in the morning. Maybe you brushed your teeth or made cereal. Or I don't know what you did, but you followed that same pattern. You drove to church the same way you always do. You create patterns or, or the patterns you'll fall into, but you'll always have patterns. Let me say it this way. Let me, let me say it the other way. Uh, you know, uh, as a leadership Expert, no, expert as an expert as, as a as a studier of leadership it's frequently said this way that you are perfectly your systems are perfectly designed to get the outcome that you're getting i'm going to turn that into just language we're using your patterns are perfectly designed to get the outcome you're getting so if you don't like your outcome change your patterns like i don't like what keeps happening we'll change your patterns Patterns are extremely important, and remnants have this unique ability, this new, this, this unique way of thinking that would actually call them, cause them to buck the system and form new patterns. And when you form new patterns, you will find that people don't always like it. You ever had somebody tell you, why do you go to church all the time? How stupid is that? You would give your money to other people? Shh. People don't like it when you form godly patterns in general. And they didn't like it because Daniel was forming godly patterns. And those godly patterns had allowed him to prosper. You see that in the, in the, in the way that, that he didn't eat the king's food and now he's prospering. And the other people around him didn't like it no more than your colleagues will like it sometimes. And they decided to try to get Daniel in trouble. And so they look around for something he's doing to break the law or to get him cast out of his position or get him thrown in jail. And, and they actually study his life and they can't find anything. Oh, my goodness. Man, you could study me for 10 minutes and find something. But Daniel's living such a holy lifestyle, such a unique lifestyle that, that, that there's, they can't find anything. Don't, y'all looking at me laughing, you could study you for three minutes and find something. The person next to you could find something. I'll tell you about her. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, and so they look for something. They can't find anything. And so they start to realize he has a pattern of praying to Yahweh. Huh. And they said, we can use that pattern against him. Because in our culture, you're supposed to pray to Nebuchadnezzar, or at this point, Darius. Uh, you're supposed to pray to Darius. The king is God, and you're supposed to pray for him. He's the next king in line. And so, so Darius, so they go to Darius. They're like, hey, you should make a decree. And in this time period, once you make a decree, you can't back up on it. They said, Darius, you should make a decree that anybody that prays to another god other than you should be thrown into the lion's den, right? You should be killed. And Darius is so narcissistic, and he's like, yeah, I like that decree. That sounds like a good one. Um, um, and so they, 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 they see it. And, and, and I want you to see what, what happens here. As soon as the decree goes out, I love this, because it says something about Daniel and his, and his patterns and his being a remnant. In Daniel 6.10 Now, when Daniel learned that the decree has been published, some translations would say, as soon as Daniel learned that the decree has been published, he went home and pouted and cried and decided, I can't pray anymore. He said, Well, I guess it's just all over now. No, no. As soon as he heard it, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened, 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 not in hiding, not in secret. Where the windows opened toward Jerusalem, three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed. Not once, not twice. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God, just as he had done before. Some translations would say, just as his, was his regular practice. In other words, this was his pattern. This is what he had always done. And when the decree comes, he's not doing anything different. I'm gonna, this is why they were trying to get him in trouble. And he doesn't even shut the doors. I might be willing to shut the doors if it were me. I mean, come on. There's bold and there's stupid, and sometimes we cross that line a little bit. He doesn't even shut the doors. I'm just going to do what I've been doing because this is my pattern as a remnant. And it continues to get him in trouble. Like Daniel, I think we defy the norms and fight for godly patterns. That's the way that we survive as a remnant within an ungodly culture. Let me give you five real, real quick. I don't want to spend a bunch of time, but five real quick. Five godly patterns. Number one, prayer prayer. Do you have a pattern of prayer? Do you have a pattern of prayer? Now this is key because because I know you pray when you go through a hard time. I know you pray when you're late for work in the morning and you need God to open up the traffic. (laughs) It's like the old joke, as long as there's tests in schools, there'll still be prayer in schools. I know you pray when things are not going well. I know you have that, but I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a pattern of consistent prayer somehow in your life. Uh, Sometime in the future, maybe I'll I'll discuss it, but I've recently started a a pattern of prayer where it's one minute every 60 minutes that has just changed my life. I'm just being honest with you. It's changed everything. But do you have a pattern of prayer? Or do you just like pray here or there? Or Smith Wigglesworth would say, "I, I never pray more than, I think it was never pray more than five minutes at a time, but I never go five minutes without praying. Do you have a pattern of prayer? Do you have a pattern of fasting? You see both of these in the life of Daniel, that he would actually start fasting. I know you fast sometimes when the pastor tells you you should fast, and then you complain about it throughout the 21 days. You don't complain to me. You just complain to other people. I know. I get it. Um, and so it's like, oh, I got to fast. Pastor called to fast. I guess I got to do this again. Uh. I'm not even sure that even qualifies as a fast at that point. But, but do you have a pattern of fasting? I know certain people in this church that they fast a certain day every week or a certain meal once a month. It's on my calendar, and I'm not always successful at it, but it's on my calendar to fast the first three days of every month, a tithe back to God. Do you have a pattern of fasting? Do you have a pattern of biblical meditation? Now, I, I want to be clear because I, I purposely called it biblical meditation, not Bible reading, because many of us get trapped on reading somebody else's thoughts about the Bible that's called a devotion. Devotion is fine. It's good. But devotion is kind of like the snack food you buy at the, at the convenience store. Like, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll get you by in a short run, but it's not meant to be eaten all the time and last like that. That's, that's not what devotions are meant for. Go to the actual Word of God. Read it and allow the actual Holy Spirit to speak to you, not just John Bevere or John Maxwell or whoever. And those things are great. I'm not against those people or devotions, but, but let the Holy Spirit speak to you and meditate on the Word God. Do you have a pattern of biblical? And I'm not talking about just on Sundays. If your whole biblical meditation is Sundays when the pastor is preaching, it's not a good pattern. Do you have a pattern? Number four, do you have a pattern of serving? Do you have a pattern of serving? So that's kind of an odd one to put in there. Here's the truth. When you love God, you will naturally begin to love people. And when you love people, it will be demonstrated in the way you serve people. I'm not talking about volunteering in the church, although that could be a part of this, uh, but it's the way that you treat the people you're around. Are you serving your coworkers? Are you serving your boss? Are you serving that person that you drive by and they got a flat tire and you just were going to drive by, but the Holy Spirit says, no, go back and help them. Are you serving that, that, that little old lady that's struggling to pay her Medicare bill that month or her medicine bill, and, and maybe she needs an extra you know, 50 bucks and you can serve them? Are you serving? Is there a pattern of serving in your life? Pattern of serving. Number five, giving. Is there a pattern of giving? When your heart is changed, money is the number one thing in competition with your heart. And as soon as your heart is changed, you will then begin to start giving. And I'm not just talking about the church, that's fine, and, and tithing and stuff like that. But, but, but giving to the people you're around and serving them through giving and helping one another, it'll start to happen as you are a pattern of giving. Um, in our church, we, we have a... Uh, Really, it's a a large amount of first-time givers weekly. There was six last week. I don't know the exact number, but I would say Melody's in front of me. There's probably about, on average, like one a day. So it's probably in the ballpark of 350, um, you know, first-time givers a year. That's a lot. But most of those first-time givers give once and never give again. Why? Because in America, we are very emotionally driven givers. So something touches my heart, it speaks to me, I want to help this thing or that thing, and we will emotionally give. We're very generous people in, more than other countries in America, and we will give when something touches our hearts, but we don't create a pattern of giving. And so you could go a long time without ever giving. And so those are some of them. I, I could put this up there, but a pattern of church attendance. I almost felt like that should be assumed, and I didn't put it up there, but, but listen, if you're not coming to church, and nobody's going to be here You know, 52 Sundays a year. If you're here 52 Sundays a year, take a Sunday off and go to the beach. I'm just being real with you. But, but nobody's going to be here every single Sunday. Um, but do you have a pattern of church attendance, or is your pattern once or twice a month? Now, our church breaks this, but the national standard is once or twice a month, and people consider themselves committed Christians and committed to the church. That's not a pattern of church attendance. And so you end up with these, these patterns that form you into the remnant that God has. And what begins to happen is you form the patterns and then the patterns form you. First, you form the patterns. And make no mistake, you have to form the patterns. It won't happen naturally. It won't happen by accident. You won't stumble into a pattern. You are going to have to make a conscious decision to form the patterns in your life. And the first step to recognizing that that, that, the first step to, to, to revival is recognizing that the patterns in our life that have not led to revival need to change. And we need to create patterns that are leading towards revival. Remnant patterns. Here's a big emphasis that I'm going to say repeatedly probably this morning. But wishing for revival is not the same thing as patterning for revival. (coughs) Wishing for revival is not the same thing as patterning for revival. If I talk to Christians, even nominal Christians, they'll all say, yeah, we need a revival. I wish we had a revival. I hope God will do a revival. That's a big difference between wishing for something and actually patterning your life because the revival starts in you. And until you pattern yourself around God and become that remnant, which Martin Luther would call that remnant, he would call it a cell of revival within the church. When you become that remnant, that cell of revival within the church, you become a powerful, powerful group that can bring something different. But it's not wishing, it's not wishing, it's actually doing something about it. So, Daniel now, Daniel is is, is caught red-handed because he's not even trying to hide it because he opened the doors. And he's praying out loud <laughs> three times a day, just in case you didn't hear me the first time or the second time. You got me the third time. And they come in, and they grab Daniel, and they bring him before the king, Darius. And, 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 and I'm going to preach a message on this one day. It's been in my notes for years. I want to preach a message on stupid things we say that we can't unsay. Because Darius is like, I really, really, really like Daniel. Like, I didn't mean to get Daniel killed. <laughs> I, I, but he can't take back what was said. Come on. Come on. There's a whole message in there for some of us who have said things. And 10 years later, we're still wishing we could pull it back, but you can't. And, and you see that actually quite a few times in the Bible. It's going to make a great series one day when I finally get around to it. But, but he gets brought up before Darius, and Darius is like, oh, man, what did I do? But I can't back out of it because I have made my word, and I have said this. And so he is thrown into the lion's den. Not only a lion's den, but a, a den of hungry lions. Hungry lions. Like, like they want some banana pudding. Hungry lions. <laughs> Which leads to my third point. The patterns of remnant enable them to thrive under difficult circumstances. Because... When that remnant happens, it's the testing of your faith that develops perseverance that James talks about. When that remnant begins to form, all of a sudden what you will discover is that the difficult circumstances of life don't crush them. They actually begin to thrive amongst the difficult circumstances of life, which is opposite to the way it should seem. Because Daniel, the story of Daniel should be ended right here in the lion's den, and that's a bad way to die. Like, on my top ten list of ways to die, that's up there. Like, that is a bad way to die. You want to get eaten and mauled by hungry lions? Okay, that's a bad way to die. But the context seems to show that Daniel just got in there, laid his head down on the lions like they were a pillow. When you have a pattern of trusting God, all of a sudden you can trust him in the lion's den, or you can trust him at prayer three times a day you can trust him in the board meeting or the lion's den Uh, because the pattern teaches you to trust God at a higher level. That's one of the things that we've done so poorly in the church because we haven't discipled people. So when something like COVID happens, we run around like a chicken with our head cut off. We lose our job. We have this thing or that thing. A storm of life comes to us and we say, ah, 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 ah. And we look like a military that has never been trained that guns start shooting over our heads and everybody starts losing their mind, not knowing what to do because we haven't developed disciplines or patterns in our life that teach us what to do in that moment. I can't prove this biblically, but I would argue this. That all he did, he walked into the lion's den and he said, I pray three times a day. It's probably my third time to pray. I'm gonna start praying. He just did what he'd been doing. He's just now in front of lions instead of in front of kings. <laughs> he, he just fell back into the pattern. The pattern will teach you, the pattern will teach you, you something. In fact, in fact, uh, we did a series a few years ago. Some of you still have the, the t-shirts on for it, called Extremophiles. Which is a weird word, but an extremophile is an organism that thrives amidst extreme circumstances. It not only survives extreme circumstances, circumstances where nothing else could be living, but it actually thrives. And I believe we are living in a country right now where you can thrive even amidst the extreme circumstances that are thrust upon you in this world if you will put the Lord first. Daniel thrived that way. Daniel, thrive that way. Let me connect let me connect a Christmas dot for you real fast. How much did Daniel thrive? You go 600 years later. 600, that's a long time. 600 years later, wise men come from the east to visit Jesus in the nativity, right? Where did those wise men come from? Historically, it's believed that that's still the legacy of Daniel, who were teaching people about the word of God and the Old Testament prophecies 600 years later, these people who are not even Jewish are still t- testing what Daniel had to say and following a star. Six, You are influential at that point. We can't even mo- name most people that live 600 years ago today, and we have technology. But they come 600 years later looking for Jesus. That's, that's influence. He thrived amidst the pressure. And so he's laying there with the lions. I heard one preacher say it this way. He said the reason Daniel couldn't get eaten in the lion's den was because he was all backbone. I think I shared that a few weeks ago, all backbone. So he's, he's in the lion's den and he seems to go to sleep. And the first thing in the morning, cause King Darius didn't want Daniel to die. He realized he had said something stupid and he's trying to fix it. So he comes down first thing in the morning and he knocks on the door expecting not to hear anything. And then like, Hey, what's up? And he lets Daniel out. He's like, oh my goodness, oh my, oh my goodness, oh, and he makes this, like you got to see this, Daniel chapter 6, verse 25 through 28, then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth. In other words, he sent a mass email to everybody, May you prosper greatly. That's a great way to start. Verse 26, I issue a decree. Remember those decrees can't be changed. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. Not me. Before you had to pray to only me, but now you must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed and his dominion will never end. It almost sounds... (laughs) It almost sounds like this secular king is teaching good theology. I know that's not possible. I know it's not possible that a a president or a politician that is so far from God could get so radically touched by God that he changes everything and starts decreeing the things of God. I know that's not possible, but it's right here with King Darius. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. There's that word again. So Daniel prospered during the reign of King Darius in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. That's the next king that would be in charge. So Daniel kept prospering. But I want you to see where it all starts. Patterns that form a remnant. A few people that are going to change everything. that are going to hold things together while turmoil is surrounding them. A few people. But that has been the history of the church, by the way. I've said this for years. I'll keep saying it. The church popular is the church polluted. In the polluted church is a puny church. The church persecuted is the church pure. And the pure church is a powerful church. I'm not silly enough to walk around praying for persecution, but I am recognizing that when persecution comes, it is the best day for the church. They estimate that in AD 100, the church had only grown to about 20,000 people at that period. For the first 70 years, they had been the upper room, the 5,000 that are saved, and then 20,000. That's all they had gotten to. That's not a whole lot of increase in 70 years. But then persecution starts happening, and they start fleeing for their lives. And in the midst of being illegal and having hostility thrown at them, in the midst of having no church building, in the midst of, for most of that time, having no official Bible, having no professional leadership, nobody going to theology school and teaching them the Word of God, no seeker-sensitive services and no attractional services. In fact, they actually made it hard for people to come into the church during this time period because of the persecution and they were scared of spies. In the middle of all that, they grew from twenty thousand one hundred A.D. to by 310 A.D., it's estimated it was 20 million people. 20,000 to 20 million in 200 years. And that's most of the population that was known at the time. They did it because they had an apostolic DNA missional call inside of them. They were a remnant that, in the midst of persecution, created patterns that revolved themselves around the Lord Jesus Christ. And through doing that, they began to serve and love, and it changed the world. It literally turned it upside down. (sighs) Oh, my goodness. They started to recognize who they were, that they had a calling on their life just like everybody else. There wasn't a hierarchy of of people that everybody else submitted to. It was a uh, recognition that that there was a galaxy, not just a star. I shared this so much last year, and I'll keep sharing it until I die probably, but one of the biggest problems with the church is that we created stars on the stage instead of a galaxy in the audience. And people started to recognize who they were, that you are apostle prophet, evangelist, teacher, shepherd. It is in you to do those things. I was in the green room this morning before the first service, and I was having this thought, because we have a couple of staff members who are sick, and I'm not feeling very well today. Um, and so I was in the green room, and I had this thought. I thought, and whatever happened to the times in the church where instead of everybody coming to hear from me, they just came to hear from a Word of God, a Word from God. And I thought, I thought, like, I know this may not be reasonable in a group this size, but But, like, what if I just walked up and be like, who has a word from God? Because you do realize you should be hearing from God daily. You should be hearing. And if you were in a group of six people, it might be a little bit more reasonable. And you say, all right, who has a word? And they just stand up and start sharing what God is speaking to them right then. In a group this size, it might be a little more complicated. But the very fact is, every one of you should have a sermon brewing inside of you. And it may not have three parts, and it may not have a poem, and it may not have a conclusion, it may not have a fun little catchy intro, but you got a sermon brewing inside of you because the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. Come on. It's brewing. And somehow we became a star that everybody comes to instead of being a galaxy. And that's how it changed everything. This remnant was forming. And I closed with a stand-up with me around the room. It's time for a remnant uprising. It's time for a remnant uprising. A few years ago, I did a series called I Am Remnant, and I stole some of the stuff from that. I just want to repeat some of it for you again. Because when we talk about being a remnant, I'm not talking about me or us. I'm talking about you. We've got to make it personalized. We've got to make it individual. My friend Pat Schatzlein wrote a book called I Am Remnant. We did a whole series called I Am Remnant, not from the book, but... Just from the idea, it's time for a remnant uprising. It's time that a group of people rise up and say, I am faithful. I am going to be righteous before God instead of trying to be cool in the world. I am able to do everything God has called me to do. I am going to be obedient to the word of God. I am hungry for more. I am dead to sin and alive in Christ. I am called and empowered by God. I am a missionary to this world. I am God's man or woman positioned in the place that I am to be an ambassador for Christ everywhere I go. And I will speak what he is speaking to me. I am a carrier of Christ's kingdom. (coughs) I believe, it might be old-fashioned, but I believe in the power of the cross. And maybe we don't like to talk about it anymore, but I believe in the power of the blood. Maybe it's a little gothic and a little nasty, and some people don't understand it, but they need to, because it's only the blood that saves us. And somewhere there's got to be a remnant that starts talking about the blood again. I believe in the Bible as the Word of God, with the authority and inspiration of God, to change my life as I read it and to speak to me on God's behalf. I believe in prayer. I believe in the empowerment and the empowering and the filling of the Holy Spirit. I believe in the church being a righteous agent around this world. I believe in Jesus Christ is still the answer to every sinner on the face of the planet. And he can break off every stronghold. Yes, right. Everything that ills us, everything that holds us back, everything that puts us in bondage, and there is plenty of it, every single thing can be delivered by Jesus Christ. So that sounds old-fashioned. Yeah, it's a remnant. It's a little thing of the past that we need to bring back into the future. And therefore, I will pattern my life around God. I will go when I'm called. I will give when I'm called. I will defend the fatherless and rescue the hurting. I will fight injustice. I will not quit in the face of opposition. I will pick up my cross and carry it daily, even though it's uncomfortable and it's awkward at times. I will not compromise. I will give grace to people, but I will not compromise my beliefs. I will develop convictions. I will be the church, not just attend church. Come on, somebody. I will live a life worthy of Christ's death. I will be a remnant because I will pattern myself around the things of God that will protect me from this culture and the natural infilling and gravitational force that it has on us. It's like the air we breathe. You cannot escape it, but you can re-pattern your life around it. Daniel could not ex- escape the exile but he could pattern his life in such a way that he could keep God with him amidst the exile. I close with one last little reading. This is referred to as the fellowship of the unashamed. I've shared it a few times over the years. You may have heard it other places. It's referred to as the fellowship of the unashamed and nobody knows the exact details of who wrote it, but it's believed that a a younger pastor in Africa, a missionary pastor, had threats on his life and believed that he was about to be killed. And the night before he was killed, he sat in his tent and he wrote down his convictions and who he was and who he was going to be. Because it's the moment where you can turn and run and flee and maybe live another day, or you can stand for what you believe. Because make no mistake, sometimes God rescues us out of the lion's den and other times he does not. Sometimes it will feel like God failed you. And he wrote this down as he's looking at his last hours on the planet he said I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed I have the Holy Spirit's power the die has been cast I have stepped over the the line the decision has been made I'm a disciple of his I won't look back let up slow down back away or be still my past is redeemed my presence makes sense my future is secure I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, live in His presence, walk in patience, am uplifted by prayer, and labor with power. My face is set. My gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way rough, my companions few, but my guide is is reliable, my mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifices, hesitate in the presence of the enemy, pander at the pool of popularity or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. Because I am a disciple of Jesus. Therefore, I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, and work until he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me because my banner will be clear you see there was a time in the church where we called people to the standard of the word of God and not the standard to create God in your image but to create you in God's image that you would be fashioned to look like him not him fashioned to look like you and sometimes we've lost that and we got to get back to the pattern of true Christianity because that's what the remnant are going to have and I recognize that not everybody's going to take this step. Not everybody can actually start patterning, patterning themselves in this way. But God is calling you to. It'll take facing adversity. It'll take walking through hardships. You'll probably be name called. You'll have people laugh at you. You'll do things that are uncomfortable. But make no mistake, that is what it is to be a disciple of Christ. That's right. I certainly believe that God in the prosperity of God and God wants to bless you. I believe in that, but make no mistake, the ultimate blessing of God is heaven. And it's not always that you're going to have the perfect amount of heaven on earth. Have you lived it all? (laughs) So what patterns form your life? Because there's a huge difference between wishing for revival and patterning for revival. What patterns form your life? You're getting the outcomes based on the patterns that have been formed. Some of them have been formed without thinking about it. You kind of fall into them. I just started Netflixing, net, 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 uh, binge watching Netflix. And you fall into a pattern. Sometimes, so, sometimes other people form the patterns for you. They force you to do something. You have to mold yourself into them. But I'm telling you, if you're gonna be a remnant disciple, you will have to buck the system fight against what the culture around us and intentionally form godly patterns in your life. Because those patterns will form the remnant and that remnant will bring revival. And through revival, there's an awakening that's coming. So as we wrap up this whole series, revival is now. And I, and, I, and I really do love, I'm not hating on it, but I really do love that I say revival is now and the whole group of people are like, yes, amen. I love that, I do love that. But make no mistake, if we just cheer it on, but we don't pattern ourselves for it, you'll miss out on it. It's not about an amen, although I appreciate the amens. I, 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 it's not about the amens. It's about patterning, patterning, patterning yourself. Sorry, my head's all stopped up. Patterning yourself for the revival that God has coming. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, would you consider subscribing? If you were moved by this message, we would love to hear your testimony. Please email it to amen at myarisechurch.com. I pray you leave here feeling encouraged and inspired. We'll see you next time.